0: Hey, this is Jen Johans of FilmIntuition.com or Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen and Friends. If Watch with Jen is the studio track, this is the acoustic version. Today's guest is Jason Bailey. A gifted film writer, critic, and historian, with an engaging, inquisitive voice and bylines at such prestigious outlets as the New York Times, Vulture, The Playlist, and others. Jason is also the editor-in-chief of the website Crooked Marquee. Additionally, the author of four books, Jason has written It's Okay With Me, Hollywood, The 1970s, and The Return of the Private Eye. Pulp Fiction, The Complete Story of Quentin Tarantino's Masterpiece, The Ultimate Woody Allen Film Companion, and Richard Pryor, American Id. His fifth book, Fun City Cinema, which is slated to be released in the fall of 2021 from Abrams, covers 100 years of New York movies and their intersections with the history of the city, told through the lens of 10 iconic Fun City films, one per decade. But since you can only fit so many stories into one book, Jason has launched a companion Fun City Cinema podcast, which uses a nonfiction narrative storytelling format and is available now wherever you get your pods. I am excited to talk to him about all of this today. So without further ado, here is Jason Bailey. I really appreciate you doing this. How are you doing and how are you adapting to pandemic life?
1: You know, here's the thing. Were it not for the sort of like creeping sense of existential dread, Mm -hmm. I'd be thriving in this environment. (laughs) I'd be I'd be just like, I was never a person who left the house a lot to begin with. Yeah. Um, I've been working from home for the better part of a decade. Um, I've been hoarding movies for years that I'm, I'm finally like have an excuse to, to, to make the time to watch. Yes. Um, you know, w- were, were I not like genuinely fearful for the future of humanity? <laughs> I'd be doing great, you know? Yes. <laughs> um, and, and, also, the, you know, the bulk of what I've been writing that w- what I've been writing before any of this happened was mostly about, you know, older movies and streaming titles. Mm-hmm. So, I you know, having sort of carved that out as a niche, I've been lucky enough that, you know, I've lost some work in not being able to go to festivals and to cover new releases. But I've, I've been able to keep working at a pretty steady pace and, and pitching and landing Enough to stay afloat. So, so I'm I'm very lucky in that way. But yeah, you know I I would feel great were it not Mm -hmm. for you know yes investors vaguely at everything yeah
0: everything yes did it takes some getting used to like when this started I found it was hard to write for the first few weeks like hard to sit down and concentrate and then finally I had to like limit my news intake and did better but did you have anything like that
1: with me it was more of a sense of like i there was kind of a little flurry of work right at the beginning for me because there were sort of like you know there was kind of a content maw to fill right away in terms of like mm-hmm. things like i said you know i I've, i do a lot of writing about streaming and what's available and sort of what's off in the corners um and and sort of making recommendations and so there was there was a real push for that kind of stuff right away the sort of now that you're stuck on your couch here are some things to watch sort of thing so i didn't really have the luxury of of i had to focus um to to to, to hit those deadlines um i found it harder to focus only because like i said i've been working from home for years but usually with no one else here um Mm -hmm because my children were in school and my wife you know goes to her job she works in an office Mm -hmm. um and so i you know i had to mostly just get accustomed to the fact that like i wasn't going to have the kind of uninterrupted um focus you know hours of uninterrupted writing time that i had before and i would have to work in more of a stop and start sort of uh rhythm and also often to sort of put things away to do late at night that normally I might have done during the quote-unquote workday.
0: Yes. Well, congratulations on your upcoming book, Fun City Thank Cinema. You. I, I've loved following your progress on it on Twitter over the years. I remember you going to work at the New York Public Library on it and then all the amazing photos that you found and right. you've shared on your Instagram account for Fun City, which I'm sure going to link to when oh, I good. post this. So what can you tell us about your book and the companion podcast?
1: I mean, the book is born out of just a a fascination I've had since I since I moved to New York. And I feel like it's important to stress that, that this is um, the perspective of both an outsider and a a sort of adopted New Yorker that I moved here uh, in 2006 um you know so i was 30 at that time uh-huh. and uh and had lived you know up until that point in my life in wichita kansas which so that's a huge sort of shift in the kind yeah. of in in where you're living at 30 to go from you know a, a good sized midwestern city you know to new york um and from the moment i came here i i, I became fascinated with new york movies in in a very anthropological kind of way mm-hmm. in just seeing cityscapes and backgrounds and places that i visited now as part of my daily life like places i literally would walk to on my way to work that suddenly you know here's a movie from 30 years ago and look how different this corner was it was that sort of like a, a basic interest But I knew that, you know, as the years passed and I became more enamored with New York cinema and and, you know, I'd always had an interest. It was part of why I wanted to live here was because of filmmakers like Scorsese and Spike Lee and Sidney Lumet and all of the greats. But um, but I, I as the years passed, I sort of had this idea that I was nursing, that I wanted to to manifest in some way. And I talked for a time with, uh, you know, my podcast producer is also a filmmaker. And so we, for a time, we're talking about doing kind of a documentary, a sort of New York plays itself oh, version cool. of Los Angeles plays itself. But eventually I just I, I got it into my head that I wanted to write a book that was about how New York history informs New York cinema and how, you know, this sort of basic idea that every New York movie you see that is shot Contemporaneously, um, mm-hmm. that takes place in the New York of that moment, is you know it's whatever its story, whatever story it's telling in the foreground, but in the background, it's a documentary of what New York City is right then. Yes. Um, and the fact that as the you know as as I learned more about the city, I learned more about how often the stories that were being told on screen were being informed by what was happening in that city. Historically, politically, socially, um, yeah. and the ways in which those feed off of each other. Uh, so that so that's kind of what the book is. It's a dual history of New York City and New York cinema, and uh, the sort of struggles to create a New York filmmaking scene early on, and then the the sort of the rich irony of it, which is that you know most of the even the great New York movies that we talk about in the book, things like you know King Kong or the jazz singer things like that you know were mostly still shot in california because Mm -hmm. it was so uh prohibitively expensive and complicated to shoot on location in new york you know even films like those would do like a couple of days of second unit or whatever but mostly still shoot on sound stages and on sort of backlot versions of new york but in 1965 the the mayor's office of, of film was created uh as an initiative to make jobs and to bring in uh bring in you know to bolster the economy yeah. and unfortunately it happened right at the beginning of the city sort of sliding into the toilet in oh. terms of in terms of crime and in terms of of uh of its economic and you know social safety net so all of the things we think of as like the great gritty new york movies like you know Midnight Cowboy and Taxi Driver and mm-hmm. Pelham 123. These are all movies that would not have existed or at least would not have been shot in New York were it not for the fact that New York City's government had made such an effort to bring movies back to New York City. And and yet they ended up documenting what a what a what a shithole the city had turned <laughs> into. So that that was sort of when I when I stumbled upon that connection, that was when I realized that this was really a story. To be told and everything after that was just about finding a format and um and a, a way to tell the story that made sense and that also that a publisher would like want to buy so
0: yes well it's interesting you're from the midwest i grew up in minnesota originally uh-huh. and uh-huh. i loved the new york movies growing up like manhattan and yep. all of the scorsese films spike lee Sidney lumet and i remember telling a friend oh i want to live in new york and they're like they were from New York and they said, you're not Mm -hmm. really interested in New York. You're in love with New York in the movies. Right. Yes. Right. So what was your first impression as somebody who probably watched all these movies in Kansas city when you first got to New York? compare the two from film
1: to reality (laughs) i mean you know i i had sort of prepared myself i had i visited a couple of times and i had the friend that i mentioned who i do the podcast with now had already lived here for a few years so i would i was prepared for the fact that i wasn't gonna like you know parachute into a taxi driver yes um (laughs) and you know and that 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 tension I think is really interesting and is something I try to explore in the book that, you know, it was, it is an era that it's easy to romanticize, Mm -hmm. um, and to, you know, to, to think, to, to, to live here now in a, in a comparatively a very safe New York, um, to, to romanticize that danger, but to also sort of understand the ways in which, The price that was paid for that safety was for the city to lose so much of its personality just in terms of the ways in which it had been gentrified and hyper-commercialized and sort of uh, chain-restauranted, if I may make up a verb. Um, And so, you know, I I wasn't expecting to drop into... The New York City of the movies that I loved It was still sort of striking to be like There's genuinely a Starbucks On nearly every (laughs) block here And that's strange And then to watch a movie like Pelham 123 Where the big stunt where the police car That's trying to get the ransom over Like flips and you know Crashes on a corner right? Well that corner has a Starbucks on it now Like that has always (laughs) been My sort of like go to example Of the incongruity of new york city that you see in the movies in the 70s in new york city as it is today so again hopefully it is a tension and hopefully that tension is something that that i'm able to explore in the book with 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 some uh intellectual acumen i hope
0: oh i'm sure i cannot wait well i know you've written four other titles that i so Mm want to read right now which one was your first book and do you have a favorite
1: my first was was Pulp Fiction. Uh okay. was it was the the Pulp Fiction book which uh, you know I'm asked sometimes like oh how do you get into writing books? And like with me it was pure chance and luck and uh timing mm-hmm. because um this was just this was a commission job. This was not something I pitched. This was a publisher of the sort of uh Voyager Press, which is a publisher of these sort of Il, you know, big—not not quite coffee table books, but sort of illustrated gift volumes that are companions to pop culture artifacts. Uh-huh. Um, and the the twentieth anniversary of Pulp Fiction was coming up, and they were just looking to commission a writer to write one of these books. They had just put one out the year before about Big Lebowski; it had done well, so there was a sort of format and a formula they wanted to follow. Uh-huh. Um, and so the editor at Voyager, who was in charge of that, just sent an email to. Uh, I I don't know if maybe even several editors, but sent one to my editor at the Atlantic where I had written a few freelance pieces at the time Mm -hmm. and basically said, do you have a writer who might want to write a book on Pulp Fiction and could do it quickly because they were trying to, again, to hit an anniversary deadline. Sure. And um, they recommended one of the staff writers there who luckily for me turned it down, just didn't have time to do it. Okay. Um, But, but I had, recently written a piece that got into pulp fiction sort of not even as its sole focus but just like sort of in a sideways mention yeah. um and that and they had published that like two weeks earlier so the oh, fact that perfect. i was first on this movie was fresh in this editor's mind and they said "Well, why don't you talk to this guy and so i did that and it it went over well and it was uh well received it, and this is still sort of a point of pride uh, it was not a, it was going to be just sort of a fan volume, an unofficial book because they didn't have rights and permissions. But as kind of a last ditch thing, you know, when they were in layout, they sent the galleys over uh, to the, the current um, management of Miramax. The Weinsteins okay. were gone by then. I yeah. like I like to I like to, <laughs> I like to yeah, underscore wasn't those guys. <laughs> this, this book was not approved by Harvey Weinstein, but it was approved by the current Miramax people who sent the galleys to Quentin Tarantino oh, wow. who approved them as well. So that then it became an official authorized companion book with, you know, official photos and their sort of stamp of approval, which was a, a big honor for a first time. Oh, that's uh,
0: amazing! <laughs> yeah.
1: So that was that was the first one. My favorite that's been published is the Richard Pryor book, just okay. because that was that was a fun opportunity to sort of to, to talk about film, but also stand up comedy, which has always been a passion, but not something I ever have, had really written about. Um, Mm -hmm. And also, again, to get into sort of social justice issues and and to do and to do something that was kind of a biography, but not because it's not a biography of him. It's just kind of a a series of essays that explore recurring threads between all of his work. So we're talking about his films. We're talking about his concert movies. We're talking about his stand up albums or even in places talking about television appearances and interviews and sketches and sort of any kind of ephemera that he touched. Mm-hmm. Um, the themes that Pop up again and again and again um, So I'm very proud of of that book And um, I have Actually a, a new edition of that book coming out This year because he would have been 80 oh. this year um, So I expanded it a little bit and, and revised some things and that'll be out In a couple of months um, th- all of that said, I think the new book is the best one okay. that, that I've written. It's certainly the one I spent the most time on. Yes, <laughs> certainly the like most it. effort on. So, so I, but I'm I'm very very happy with how it came out.
0: Oh, I am so excited! Sounds wonderful. What is your writing process like, and how has it changed over the years?
1: Oh gosh, um, it's it's hard to. I don't know. It's very precise and sort of regulated, but it depends on what kind of project we're talking about. So, you know, I have one very precise um, methodology for when I'm writing a book. I have another sort of similar but adjusted one for when I'm writing like sort of a long researched piece. And then I have a third one for when I'm doing just a review or sort of a, 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 a retrospective piece on a single film. Okay, um, so where should, <laughs> where should I start, or which are you most interested in? I guess? Um,
0: I'm trying to think for writers starting out what they would sure. probably want to ask you. I would say probably the review. Like, how do you sure. approach that?
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm actually I'm glad to talk about that because that's something I'm really interested in when I talk to other critics about what their process is. Because there's not like a a, a, a set way to do it. We're not really taught no. a particular way um, to to write a review, but. And, and I find it it really does vary wildly in fascinating ways. I think I am a big note taker.
0: Me too. <laughs> um,
1: I have and actually it's I spent a couple of years finding the right notebook. And these um, I'm showing you on the on the Skype. Yeah. These which which you can get at uh, Rite Aid, the uh, are the the sort of the seven by five uh, one sub notebook. This is my notebook of choice. Okay. Um. I take this either to the theater with me, or you know, back when you could do that, um, or I sit down, you know, on the couch or wherever I'm watching with this, and I take a lot of notes. Anything Beats that right. I think, anything that I think is of note, any plot point that I that I want to make sure I, I talk about, any impressions of a performance or, or a technical element, lines of of dialogue that I think are particularly good or or inform. Uh, what the filmmakers doing? I'm I'm scrawling a lot, and I've gotten very good at either writing in the dark or writing uh, while I'm not staring at the page, so I can mm-hmm. keep an eye on the screen. Um, and there are times when I'll write, you know, an entire you know couple of sentences, even if something really comes to me that I oh, know yeah. I want to that I want to think about. Um, and so, in a lot of ways, those notes are kind of a first draft for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, obviously on the page chronologically to how they they work in the film then i take it home or i take it you know when it's time to write the first thing i do is i transcribe all of those notes in a word document oh wow okay a stand a, just a standalone word document um but it's not a it's not a faithful transcription in that pro- part of the process i'm typing in all of my notes but i'm starting to organize them um, into related ideas and themes and sort of as I see the review taking shape where I want these ideas to go in relation to each other. Okay. So that's a note transcription, but in a lot of ways, it's an outline um, yeah. or kind of a second draft too. Interesting. Um, so then I have that and I save that. And then I told you it was it was <laughs> precise. Uh, and then I do a save as and I make a new version of that same document. And I just start writing the review directly into that document. Wow. Uh, so I, so I have all of the notes on the page and I can rearrange them again and put them in the sentence form or knock things out that I'm not going to use or whatever. But um, but then that document becomes the first proper draft of the review. OK. And then that's that's kind of how I write a review. Um, And then I'll I'll do, you know, revisions and tweaks and edits in that document. But I don't go through a lot of draft drafts, Mm -hmm. primarily because, like I said, I think of the notes as the first draft and the transcription kind of as the second draft. So by the time I'm actually writing, I've already thought through a lot of this stuff.
0: That is so intricate and time-intensive, but it makes a lot of sense. I love that.
1: Yeah. It is it is and it's interesting. It's time-intensive, but it it results for me at least and I've always been a pretty fast writer. Okay. Um, it results for me in the actual time spent writing the review mm-hmm. to be very short because I I've, I've done so much pre-writing and so much process before that that by the time I'm sitting down with you know, that with the the transcribed note documents, it'll take me, you know, an hour or maybe two to actually turn that into the review.
0: That is crazy. So impressive. I'm a oh. big note taker too. An old boyfriend called me a court reporter. I, so <laughs> you know, it's, it's insane. But yeah. um, a lot of times I'm just making an observation or something. So some of it winds up in the piece, some does not. Yep. Yep. But I really loved hearing your process
1: there. That was very cool. Yeah. Well, we, and I got to say, too, that, that also part of the reason that I take so many notes is a lot of times it's just a way to sort of keep your focus Yeah. on, on the movie. Like if I'm watching something late at night and I'm starting to feel like a little drowsy, but I got to get this thing done, just taking copious notes is a way to, to, to keep myself sharp. Um, and paying attention so
0: yes that is exactly the same thing for me you are someone i've been reading for years and you're now the editor of crooked marquee so (laughs) i do like to pose that question on behalf of young or aspiring writers so Mm -hmm. what do you look for in an article and what advice would you give those people just starting
1: out so the main thing that i'm looking for at our site and our site you know different outlets have different requirements and specific things that they're looking for and like ours you know we have we we review some new releases but we sort of have people who take we have sort of a rotating crew that's that's sort of charged with that we have a couple of regular columns but those are again sort of for specific writers what we're mostly looking for are you know uh reconsiderations Uh, retrospective pieces, anniversary pieces, and then also just sort of think pieces like work that, that ties together, you know, uh, a series of films, you know, that share a common uh, creator or theme or idea or even timeline um, and, and sort of puts them against each other in interesting ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I'm usually looking for is I just want to see in a pitch a, 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 I want to see how you're thinking. I want to see the new angle that you have to give me on this film that has in all likelihood already been written about yeah. perhaps at length. Um, yeah. what I'm, I you know, I don't want to rehash how it was made. I don't want to rehash whether it's good or not. I don't want to <laughs> rehash, you know, I don't want to read about, you know, this is the first time you're watching it or you know like none of that's interesting. No. I want to know how you see it that no one else sees it. What you bring to it. Yes. Yes. And I want to, and, and, and that process also has to be really clearly stated in the pitch. You know, that's a problem that, that sometimes you, you come across as an editor is like, you'll, you'll encounter someone who clearly like is passionate about a film, uh, who clearly can write, Mm-hmm. But if they can't convey in that one or two paragraphs of a pitch email, this is my thesis, this is how I'm going to lay it out, mm-hmm. then they're not going to be able to do that in an 800, 1000 word essay. Like yeah. the, the the clarity yeah. of your thinking and your communication is, I think, really key um, when you're pitching to an outlet.
0: Yeah, that is excellent advice. One question I've always wanted to ask you is, how did you first become interested in film, especially writing about film? And was there like a specific title that did it that hooked you?
1: Sure, um, I'll try to keep the story brief because it's complicated. Oh, you're fine. <laughs> um, you know, I I knew from ex- from sort of an unbelievably early age that I wanted to do something having to do with movies. I've, as long as I can remember, I've loved movies. Same. Um, and this again this will sound crazy but you got to understand the time i'm i'm 44 i was born in 75 at the time i'm five or six um i'm being raised by a single young mom uh the television did a lot of the babysitting and you know in wichita kansas in 1980 we didn't have cable TV yet. Like, this is sort of the last moment before that was ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. We had three networks and PBS. Yeah. And PBS, our PBS affiliate on Saturday afternoons, showed Sneak Previews, which was the first nationally uh, available Siskel and Ebert show.
0: Yeah. I and I up with that. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I can't explain why, as a five or six year old changing channels on a Saturday afternoon, I stopped on that and stayed there. But I did. I loved that show. I loved listening to these two guys talk about movies. I loved the little clips that they would show, especially from these sort of like esoteric, you know, 80s art films, these R rated things that I would never see. But, you know, it's on PBS, so I can see a little bit of it.
0: Yeah.
1: And I just was, was fascinated by that world. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a little later, um, you know, 10 or 11, I would visit the bookstore in the mall. Whenever we would go to the mall, my parents would drop me at, you know, B. Dalton or Walden Walden. Books. Yeah, I remember those. Um, And they would have like, you know, a single, you know, uh, a few shelves for film and television. And that was where I first found Roger Ebert's what it was what was then called the movie home companion, Mm -hmm. um, which at the time I discovered it, I think was in its like second or third edition. And I just started reading those reviews, those collections of his um, Chicago sometimes print reviews. Um, And they were so, I mean, and other people have talked about this at great length, but the accessibility and the, 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 the welcoming nature of his prose to an extent that even as an 11 year old, like I could read and understand and follow and want to see the things he wanted me to see. Um, And I became really obsessed with that. Well, my birthday's in November, and the new edition every year would come out, like, around November 1st. Yeah. So every year for my birthday, I would ask for and get that year's edition of the movie Home Companion or the video Companion or the yearbook. It went through some title changes. I love that. (laughs) Um, And I would sit with it, like, you know, I would spend the next week, like, reading it cover to cover, like a novel. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes skipping the ones that were holdovers from the previous year. Sometimes not. Sometimes I reread them. But that was my film education and also my introduction to what a film critic was and what their job was and how they worked. Yes. And then then later I found Pauline Kael, who's my other sort of North Star, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But, you know, in the time that I was sort of deciding what I wanted to do with my life and with my love of movies, you know, this is the early '90s, and in a way that seems inexplicable now, and again, sort of the last moment before a big change, this is a pre-widespread internet era. And in that moment, being a filmmaker mm-hmm. seemed much more possible, um, yeah. plausible than being a film critic. Film critics worked, you know, were on television or they worked at newspapers, mm-hmm. and how do you get one of those jobs, you know? And there was not an internet to to write on yet um and so that was initially how i sort of um uh, channeled my energy for for cinema was i decided i wanted to be a filmmaker and throughout my 20s and my early 30s throughout college i i wrote and directed and produced um independent films Mm -hmm. and while maintaining sort of a sideline of writing occasional film criticism i wrote for a series of all Newspapers in Wichita, Kansas, and sort of learned how to do that there. But that was always sort of the thing I did for fun. I was yeah. going to be a movie maker. Gotcha. And, yeah. And then about my, you know, somewhere in my early 30s, I, I just, it hadn't happened yet. Mm. And I had that sort of hard moment that you have around that age where it's like, if it hasn't happened yet, I don't feel like it's going to. And if it hasn't happened yet, I feel like it hasn't happened for a reason. Mm -hmm. And that reason may very well be that I'm just not quite good enough at it, which... No, which is true. Like I watch <laughs> those films now, and I, I had a good time doing them, and I like things in them, but they weren't quite good enough to to you know rise above you know. And that's the thing is you would hear these stories about you know Robert Rodriguez and El Mariachi and Kevin Smith yes. and Clark, and it just made it seem like all you had to do was get a movie made and be enthusiastic enough about it, and everyone would see it, and you would become a famous filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like that. For no. every, <laughs> every El Mariachi, there were literally thousands of movies that nobody ever saw so you know i had maintained this sort of side interest um in in criticism and then i started almost on a lark writing for a website called dvd talk oh i Um, remember you on that yes yeah yeah and that was you know that was pure i i that was for no money that was i was paid solely in review product Uh, which I wrote off at the time in my head is like, well, that's like getting paid. This is what I spend most of my money on anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I, that was really, you know, I don't know if you subscribe to Malcolm Gladwell's theory about your 10,000 hours of learning your craft, but that was where I got my 10,000 hours was writing for that site. And in the Mm -hmm. space of about three years, three or four years, I wrote over a thousand reviews for them. Yeah. Um, And all, you know, robust, you know, 500 to a thousand word. Um, And and that was where I sort of realized that it was the thing that I loved and a thing that I wanted to do and started covering film festivals for them. And like that was just sort of the 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 you know, there wasn't a specific film, but it Mm -hmm. was doing that and making that part of my life that made me realize that was what I wanted to do if I could as my day job instead of the thing I did at night after my day job. So uh, long, long story too late to be too short um, my wife had gone to NYU's journalism school while I worked and then she got a job and then she put me through the cultural reporting and criticism program there. Oh, wow. Um, which was where I learned, you know, from a more journalistic perspective, but also got to work and, and write with and edit with, you know, real film critics and real cultural critics. And, um, and from that, I got an internship that turned into a job which okay. is the way it all, which is the way it always used to work, but yeah. it, like never works anymore. But I lucked out that I did an internship at a site called Flavorwire that was that was sort of small and but that. expanding. <laughs> and when that internship was over, they offered me a job as a film editor, and so I did that kind of off and on uh, for uh, seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as that site sort of started to fall away, as websites were wont to do over the past few years, I started, you know, freelancing for other outlets and writing the books. And that's kind of where we are now.
0: Perfect. Yeah, I remember all of those sites. I kind of had similar um ambitions. I wanted to be a screenwriter originally, mm-hmm. and then I found that whenever I would write a paper, I was making it about film. I would turn every class into a film class, like, <laughs> you know, his American history. Oh, I'm going to write about Age of Innocence so I can watch right. the Scorsese movie. It's on my <laughs> shelf, you know, right. and so I would do that kind of thing, and I would find that while I loved writing screenplays, I was getting the most feedback on these long, in-depth essays I was writing. So kind of grew from there, for sure.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And I remember loving those guides growing up. I would get the Malton Guide, Mick Martin, and Marsha Porter's books.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yes,
0: all of those. Do you remember Cinemania, that computer program? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm only 5 years younger than you so we're kind yeah. of we have similar yeah. yes. I think yeah. I still have Cinemania 96 <laughs> somewhere. So if anyone yeah. has access to a computer where it works, I would love that. <laughs> yes. I know. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah and I, and and that that is that I associate right 96. Like I associate that with the period where sort of like online film culture was just starting to become a thing and yeah. like there were there were like AOL chat rooms for like the yes. Tarantino verse and stuff like that like mm-hmm. that was that was really when it started to become clear that like no if you if you have a voice and you want to write about movies you can at least like put it out there yeah. um, whether anyone will read it <laughs> was and remains a pointed question yeah. but you at least could anyone could have uh, an outlet anyone could have someone uh, a place to publish their work and yes. to and to learn how to do it by As doing you go.
0: For sure.
1: Right. Which yes. Is
0: well, okay. Let's say the pandemic is over and you're asked to curate a triple feature at your favorite theater. So what are you playing for us? Is there a theme? And where are you holding this screening, Jason?
1: Oh, my. Okay. No. Um, <laughs> here's what I... Okay. Honestly, here's the thing. My book is out in fall of yeah. 2021. <laughs> Um uh-huh. uh, I think maybe the pandemic will be over by then. Fingers I crossed. Hope yeah. Hope um that actually was part of the uh logic for it, originally we were shooting for a spring 2021 okay. uh publication but then things got sort of backed up at the old uh publisher uh for pandemic related reasons and this was one that didn't have a specific sort of timely peg and my editor said would you be okay if we pushed it to fall and i told him i said honestly a huge part of my promotional strategy for the book was going to be to like reach out to people i know in cities all over who have contacts at their local rep houses and try to arrange screenings where i can show you know the movies we're talking about and intro and do signings afterwards and so forth i said so you know i have no confidence at all that that's going to be a viable promotional strategy in spring 2021 maybe it will be by the fall so let's do the fall so with that in mind um yes i would do uh i would do probably a 70s new york uh triple feature okay um which would consist of Taxi Driver, of Dog course. Day Afternoon, and Pelham 123.
0: Oh my gosh. I would go... That'd be perfect. Yes. So bring it to Phoenix. That's my, okay. my well, plea for you.
1: I, I will tell ta- you... Pelham one two three is not even one of, you know, as, as you mentioned in the intro, that we focus on one sort of key, the sort of quintessential New York movie of each decade. Yeah. But we do have, you know, little like one and two page sidebars where we get into a few other titles. Pelham is not the focus title of the 70s chapter. It's Taxi Driver.
0: I would bet. But, yeah.
1: but Pelham is the one I've seen the most yes. theatrically oh, with wow. New York with New York audiences. New York rep houses know how much New York audiences love that movie Mm -hmm. and how they will always come if they screen it. I've probably seen that movie in a New York theater six times. Wow. Every time it plays like gangbusters, every time people are screaming and hooting and laughing. And, you know, when the the, the, the MTA employee says, what do they want for their lousy 35 cents to live forever? Like, every, <laughs> you know, so many of the sort of New York gags in that movie are absolutely timeless. So uh, but yeah, that's that's the triple that I that I would program uh, given my given the opportunity.
0: Okay, well, that definitely needs to happen. (laughs) Because I'm excited. I want to see those in the theater. I have not. So what have you been watching lately? Is there anything you'd like to recommend?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I I have... I've tried to take the opportunity... Excuse me, because I'm going to pull up my letterbox because my mind is mush.
0: Oh, you're fine. Um, You can edit
1: it out. (laughs) But, you know... In general, what I found myself doing was a fair number of uh, sort of boutique Blu-ray labels have had, were were very smart to have these big uh, sales throughout, and especially right at the beginning of the lockdown. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I sort of went nuts and ran up the credit card on some yeah, of those just because they were like, I mean, these Arrow uh, uh, ones, especially is like, they're selling great Blu-rays for like 10 bucks us. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, and so I've, I've seen a lot of new to me things. I've actually sort of made it, uh, a nightly ritual that every night, you know, after we put the kids to bed, um, I sort of pour a drink and sit down on the couch with a movie that I haven't seen before. And cool. a lot of, a lot of what I've been watching honestly have been has been sort of genre based stuff okay. just because I, I, I need something that, that that is a little escapist that yeah. will really keep my attention. And most of those movies are also short. They're like around ninety minutes and like that's good. I can sort of like hang with that um and, and go with it and and uh so so I'm trying to it's like some of the some of the ones I've i I've re- I saw um I saw my name is Julia Ross. Oh, i really gotten into jo- yeah, I've really gotten into Joseph Lewis in the okay. in the quarantine, just because things you know like that one was was on the Criterion Channel, but then it was also part of an Arrow sale, so I, I picked that one up and was was really really crazy about it. Um, uh, Terror in a Texas Town was like a big like that one really sort of blew my hair back. Um, I watched a handful of, of really great spaghetti westerns that I hadn't seen before, the Ringo movies for example, okay. which I really dug. Um, and then I watched that uh, that Bruce Lee box set, the Criterion Bruce Lee box set. I want to get
0: that. That's on my I list. Was,
1: I was re- I had been sort of shamefully remiss in my um, in my Bruce Lee. I was he was kind of a blind spot for me. I'd seen Enter the Dragon because everybody's yeah, seen Enter the Dragon, but I hadn't seen any of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so getting to, to work my way through those. And and watch his, you know, the, the evolution that you see in in that work mm-hmm. um, in in that one. And also, you know, I had just watched some of the Jackie Chan stuff, the early, early, early Jackie Chan movies that were on um, Criterion a couple of months yeah. ago and was really blown away by the filmmaking of uh, the films he did with Low Y. OK, uh, Le the L- L- way I'm probably saying it wrong. Anyway, he also directed the first couple of Bruce Lee films. And like just, you know, it's always fun when you discover uh, a, f- uh, a sort of a- a genre filmmaker who has a distinctive aesthetic, who has a style that really draws you in the way this guy shoots fights. And it's so easy to shoot martial arts sequences in a really aesthetic. dull Standard, yeah. static, you know, wide shot, medium, two, both, <laughs> close, close, close. And just the inventiveness with which he moves his camera and he's, the way he uses his compositions and how he'll go high and wide unexpectedly or go POV. He's just a, a terrific filmmaker. And so mm-hmm. that his work specifically, him and Joseph Lewis, are probably the two filmmakers that I've that I've ended up accidentally watching the most of in this period and really getting into.
0: Very cool. Well, I love the idea of trying to aspire to watch something new every night. I think that keeps you on your toes. It's refreshing. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: For sure. Yeah. And and it's very easy to sort of fall into comfort films, and I don't begrudge anyone who's, who's who's choosing to do that. But again, I sort of looked at the lockdown as an opportunity to, like, work my way through some viewing stacks that had been sort of getting out of control. Uh, <laughs> And uh, and try, you know, and and, I mean, we both know movies are an escape, you know, and finding a a new story or a new director or uh, a new subgenre even to explore is a way to really get yourself out of the headspace of, of what's happening outside your door, in my opinion.
0: No, I couldn't agree more. I think that's wonderful advice. Well, I want to thank you so much, Jason, for doing this. It was so much fun to talk oh, to you. Good. I really yeah, appreciate no, me it. Me too.
1: Me yeah. too. Me too. And I've I've, I've uh, i I'm flattered to join the esteemed company of, of uh, I mean, you've got quite a guest list so far. So I'm I'm honored to be uh, in their midst. Oh, and uh, honored to have you. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you for all of your support and kindness and and uh, throughout the years this is jen johans at
0: filmintuition.com or film intuition on social media and letterboxd and this is watch with jen and friends